So tonight we are going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. And it's talking about, behold, the, the days of judgment have come. The days are coming. <laughs> we've been talking about this for quite some time, many chapters. And uh, we've seen um, throughout this book, Amos, he gave us the, the prophecy that the Lord's coming judgment was going to happen in the first several chapters. And then from chapter 4 on, all the way to the middle of chapter 9, really, um, we have the reasons why God will bring his judgment. Amos is one of the only prophets that tells us why God will judge. The other ones say the judgment will come, but uh, Amos is one of the only ones that do that. And nothing's really changed. It's very applicable to us today. I think it'd be true for any nation, any culture, any country who decides that they want to go their own way. They want to turn away from the Lord. Um, he's going to judge them. And the first one we saw there in chapter 4 was because their return to the Lord did not happen. They didn't return to uh, the Lord. They talked a lot about it, but it never happened. It's kind of like our country. Right? We say, oh, there's going to be a revival, there's going to be a revival. But it never seems to get there. There's no real repentance. There's all talk about repentance. There's a bunch of talk about coming back to the Lord, getting back to sound living principles, all these things, but it just never gets there. And then in chapter 5, we saw their refusal to seek the Lord. It says they didn't seek Him, period. They had the opportunity. They were told by the prophet, you know what, you better seek the Lord before it's too late but they did not listen. Number three, we said the reliance upon themselves would prove to be a disaster. And that's always the case, right? Whenever we rely on ourselves, we get ourselves in an in, in issue or fix. And then number four, their resistance to the message of the prophet would bring judgment upon them in chapter seven. And we saw that. And that's why even Judah, there, he was addressing mainly the 10 northern tribes, Israel, but even the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, wasn't the main subject, but even they will go under judgment. He was talking to the northern kingdom, capital Samaria, uh, but even the, the southern kingdom, God will bring judgment of Babylon and wipe it out in 586 BC. So even they will be judged. And the answer in the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible, we were talking about this, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the last chapter in the Hebrew Bible, they have a little different order than we do, um, is because they mock the messengers of God. And we looked at that last week. And so God says, you know what? You're going to mock my messengers. There's no remedy for your rebellion and, and the judgment will come. Well, tonight we want to look at this idea that the judgment is here. And one of the other reasons that this came, uh, the fifth reason here, is their respect for the needy and the poor was neglected and it was abused. And you see this phrase, he starts off here, this is what the Lord showed me. And he, he has done this uh, several times. It appears for the fourth time here. It appeared in, in chapter 7 three times. And so here we come to this, this, fifth, this fifth reason that the, the respect for the poor and needy was neglected and uh, abused. They, they just didn't care about them. Um, and I think if, if God... If you think that God doesn't care about the homeless and the poor and the needy and those who are without, um, you're greatly mistaken. The Bible says a lot about that. And I know a lot of times we get fed up with people living on the streets and having issues and all that stuff, but the Bible is filled with 
<clears throat> commands to care for those who are needy amongst us. Now, we have to be wise about it. We don't want to just throw money at them and let them go buy drugs and alcohol and just further their abuse. You have to be careful about it. But this phrase, the Lord showed unto me, you see it three times uh, in chapter 7 and then here again. And remember, in chapter 7 last week, we looked at these visions, and the, the first two visions that he showed, um, uh, Amos, basically, God said he's not going to do it. He couldn't do it because it would wipe out Israel. And his promise was that the nation of Israel would never cease to exist. And so in his love and in his faithfulness to his own promise, he said, I can't wipe you out, uh, but he gave you a vision. Here's what I could do if I wanted to, <laughs> kind of a thing. Like, you might want to listen up, you know. And so uh, the, the vision he did give them was that was announcing not only the destruction of Samaria, but the potential ca captivity of the people. And he talked about a plumb line and a measuring tool. We talked about all that. And so here he gives a second illustration. The first one he gave was this, this plumb line illustration in chapter 7, and he gives us another one, and that's why it says here for a fourth time, and the Lord showed me. And you notice there in, in chapter 1, as we read this, you'll see, remember what Amos did. He was a farmer and he was a, a, a shepherd, right? And so it's kind of interesting. Sometimes God gives us illustrations that we can relate to. And so look at what he says here as we read Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. He said, this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. This is what he picked. Okay, He picked fruit, so he was very knowledgeable about this. A basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah, which was uh, basically a, a way of measuring grain, make an ephah small and a shekel the way they paid for the grain, great, and deal deceitfully with false balances. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of, and sell the, chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds." Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of its rise like, uh, rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning, in all of your songs into lamentations, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. And then he clarifies it. He says, not a famine of bread, <laughs> nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Verse 13, in that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria or the pride of, or the guilt of Samaria and say that as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again, which, by the way, they never have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we look at some of the things that we read about here and some of the things that are going on in our own culture, in our own country, and we wonder if not this basket of summer fruit is ripe for judgment of God. We don't want it to happen, and we thank God for this nation and the freedoms that we enjoy. But Lord, we know that if we turn our back on you as a nation, if we go our own way, we see what is happening. We're watching the moral collapse of a society that at one time in history considered your word to be true. And now when you bring up the word of God or the Bible, it's, it's mocked. We pray that you would help us to understand that you will not forsake your people. But you said that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Help us to learn this message from Amos and help us to apply it in a contemporary way to our own lives in our own country. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, it's always been interesting to me that as a lot of um, churches and a lot of uh, evangelicals even, uh, they look at, uh, sometimes they have this mindset, and it's concerning those who are poor, those who are homeless, those who are needy. And it's almost like uh, we've given up caring for the poor because we think it's a liberal thing to do. Like, well, the liberals do that. And that's, that's just completely wrong. We look at it as, you know, it's even been called a social gospel. Um, I've heard people say, well, the poor are always going to be with you. Jesus said that, and that's true. But that doesn't mean we turn a cold heart to them. All right? Uh, they have also... Uh, as a result, there's an uneasiness, I think, amongst a lot of, of Christians, especially fundamental Christians who believe the Bible, to take any, make any effort at all to help these folks. Um, but we're called to do that. And uh, just the other day, somebody called our church, and I was irritated that the guy kept calling back, and his name was Fred. <laughs> and uh, kept on calling, and I said, okay, Fred, where are you at, you know? I'm down at the corner of El Camino and Broadway or whatever. I said, well, you know what? I, I'm not going to give you any cash just so you know, but I can buy you a sandwich or something. I haven't eaten in days. I need something. All right, fine. I'll meet you down there about an hour. And he just kept calling back. And he, I know he's just going through the, through the directory, just calling churches. Did I call you yet? I, yeah, you already called me, Fred. You know, I think Peggy was here. It just kept on calling, you know? And it's like he was getting under my, under my skin. And so... I thought, well, I'll go to, I said, you know what, Fred, go to the Burger King right down the street, and um, I'll meet you there. All right, you'll be there? I said, yeah, I'll be there in an hour. And it's like at 1230. So I stopped what I was doing, went down there, met Fred. And uh, while I was on my way, he kept calling the church, Peggy said, you know, and I listened to the messages. Where are you? I'm here. It's 1230. You know, I got there a little late, a couple minutes late. 
And I thought, oh my goodness. So I went in and got a gift card for him and, and took it out to him and found him on the street out front there and gave him some tracks. And, uh, you know, I thought, okay, you know, I, I did my thing, but I was irritated. I thought, you know, I didn't really do that with the right spirit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was just, I had other things going on. I wasn't feeling good. I was dizzy. I was like, I don't want to go meet Fred, you know. But um, anyway, we, we, we don't, and the one reason I did it is I always think of that, that verse, I think it's in Peter, where it says, you know, you might be entertaining angels unaware. So it's like, okay, I don't want to just turn a cold heart to someone, <clears throat> but we have to be wise, right, about how we do it. I'm not just going to go give Fred 20 bucks and say, here, have fun. You know, I, I'll buy him a sandwich or whatever. And so, you know, we have to be reminded of that. And so on the other hand, I think a lot of people carry that to the extreme. All their ministry is, is about is helping those folks. And they don't teach them the Bible. They don't give them any tracts. They just put food in their stomach. And if that's all you're doing, that's not really helping them either, right? I mean, um, hopefully <clears throat> Fred will read the tracts that I left with him and talked with him a little bit. But I think sometimes we, we just throw a quarter in the bucket and think, oh, we've done our job. You know, it's easier to do that than to stop and actually talk to some of these people because, frankly, some of them are just out of their mind. They're nuts. You know, they're on drugs or whatever. And so it, it, it takes kind of a skill to be able to relate to them and all that. And you have to be careful, right? But, you know, the bottom line is, what I'm trying to say is, a lot of times we'll throw money at an issue, but we don't really uh, get very personal, right? And... Um, here we see it's a very serious challenge, I think, in the churches today. And so here in verse 1, we see this picture. We can start off with the outline here, this, this picture of this coming disaster. He says, a basket of summer fruit. What, what he's talking about here, <clears throat> it's really talking about a, a basket of fruit that is um, ripe beyond ripe, like you should have ate it three days ago. And what he's referring to is God's judgment. He's saying basically, you know what? You guys have pushed God to the brink. And you are so ripe for judgment, you don't even understand. And this is the first picture of this coming disaster. It's overly ripe fruit. And um, in the Hebrew language, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's a little insight here. This word for... <clears throat> summer fruit, that word summer, the adjective in front of fruit there, in the Hebrew is the, is the Hebrew word chaos, Q-A-Y-E-I-S, I guess is how you say chaos. And it means ripe. It means overly ripe. Well, there's, there's a similar word in the Hebrew for the word end. And it's the word case, K, or Q-E-S. And it's what, what they're doing in the Hebrew here, it's kind of a play on words. And it's done very frequently in the Hebrew language. I, I didn't take Hebrew, that was beyond me, but I got through Greek by the skin of my teeth. But, you know, so they tell us that, you know, this is, this is in other places as well. Like in, he, in, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20, it says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. In other words, he's saying it's overly right for judgment. In other words, this, this idea of the summer fruit is really picturing the end is coming. And this is the vision that, that God is giving Amos. And 
when you talk about the, the, the plumb line, last week we said, you know what, this judgment is certain. It's definitely coming. You're not going to prevent it. But here it's talking about the nearness of the judgment. Not necessarily the, the certainty of it, but the nearness of it, that it's very close based on this picture of this overly ripe fruit. And so this is a picture of this coming disaster. And then secondly here in verses 2 to 3, he talks about the predictions of what will take place in the near future. The predictions of what's going to take place in the near future. And there's four things here I want us to look at because these are predictions of the Lord about what's going to take place. If you don't repent, if you don't straighten out, uh, you know, if you don't get right with the Lord, this is definitely what's going to happen. The first one is the destruction of the northern kingdom. He says there, the end is come upon my people of Israel. <clears throat> the end is come upon my people of Israel. And this is this play on words with the word, you know, going back to the, the first verse, summer fruit. He says, the end is coming. It's overly ripe. We call it a, a prophetic presence in the, the Hebrew grammar. And it's the idea, it, it, has, it carries the idea that, that though it is coming, it's still future. In the Hebrew, it's kind of saying, it's already happened. It's so certain it's already happened. That's the idea. It's expressing it like, you know what, you're not going to get out of this one. Um, so there's this overly ripe fruit. They could have been judged before, and yet God, because of his long-suffering, because of his patience, has once again given them mercy and love, and he's given them plenty of opportunity to repent. But now what he's saying is it's gone too long. It's gone too far. This, this fruit is way done. You should have eaten this fruit three or four days ago. Now and then people leave fruit here in the fellowship hall. You know, some of the ladies come on Tuesday and bring their fruit. And sometimes, you know, I don't get to seeing it till Friday or Saturday, you know, and it's all moldy. You know, it's just, you don't even want to eat it. Um, and so this is what he's saying. The end has already come. It's done. It's finished. You're not going to get out of this one. Secondly, the deliverance of the Lord will no longer be possible. Think about that. Look at what he says. He says, I will never again pass by them. I will never again pass by them. He's saying, you know what? If you're looking for deliverance, it's not happening. It's not happening. You've had your opportunity. I will not pass by them anymore. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 8, I think it is, he says the same thing. Look at the end of verse uh, uh, 8 of chapter 7. Behold, <clears throat> I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So he says it twice. The same thing was said. <clears throat> this is it. God says, I, I'm not going to do this. Now what the, the Hebrew phrase here is talking about is that God will often hold back his judgment and give folks a, a second chance, another chance, a third chance. I mean, are you glad God does that with you? I'm glad he does it with me. <laughs> you know, that, that judgment just doesn't fall this first time you get out of line. Usually he gives you grace. He gives you mercy. And, you know, okay, you got to get back on the track here. And maybe he'll discipline you, whatever. But, <clears throat> you know, we all deserve hell, do we not? For things we've done, for things we've said, for things we've thought. Wish we could take them back <laughs> sometimes. 
And God has been gracious to us. He's, he's been kind. He's been loving. He's been merciful, forgiving. But see, the, the statement here basically is explaining to the people, and, the, and he's using Amos to do this, that opportunity will exist no longer. No longer. It's over. I will not pass by them anymore. I'm not going to stop it. It's going too far, and the judgment is coming. Isn't that a tragedy when you, God gets to that point with somebody where he says, you know, I've given you so many opportunities over and over and over again. You're still going your own way. You're still refusing to bow the knee to me. You know what? I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. No more chances. Judgment is coming. That's an awful, awful indictment. Well, he also moves on here and he says the devastation will remove all joy in worship. The devastation will remove all joy in worship. Now, remember, worship was still going on through this whole process. The problem was, was what? It was infiltrated by paganism. (laughs) They were worshiping God and gods. It It was... very uh, kind of, they just kind of blended their worship with everything. We call that today uh, syncretism, right? I mean, people that want to take their faith and blend it in with the philosophies of the world. Or in, in some foreign countries, in some, you know, places out there in the jungle, someone will, the witch doctor says he comes to Christ. Right? So now he embraces Jesus, but he doesn't let go of the whole witch doctor stuff. And everybody says, oh, yeah, you know, he's, he's a great guy. No, yeah, that, that, that's impossible. You're not supposed to do that. That's what syncretism is. It's, like a, it's a combination of different forms of beliefs or practice. They call it, another word for it is cultural adaptation. I experienced that firsthand we were on a mission field with um, some folks who were, were ministering to some Indians, American Indians. And we're driving around the, <clears throat> their, their place where they live, and you'd see one big square block of land that was just beautiful. It was, you know, fruits were growing and everything. And then the next square mile of, of, of field was just barren, nothing. And then the next one would be full. And I, and I asked the guy, I said, what, what's going on with this? I said, why are they like rotating crops or something? He said, oh, no, no, no. They, the Indians lease that to the farmers. And the farmers come in. And I said, well, it looks like it's good soil. I mean, they have a lot of, oh, yeah, it's good. But, you know, the Indians, they're not, they're not farmers. I'm like, what do you mean? They have this great opportunity. No, they're gatherers. They just believe that. Mother Earth will provide them whatever they need, so they don't want to. They don't. They don't farm. They just gather. And I'm like, well, at what point do you tell them their worldview's wrong? <laughs> because that's not going to feed them, you know. Sometimes, and, and they were. They were always struggling. And I thought, you know, that's that's kind of what it is. And it, it comes down to, well, that's their culture. You know, you you can't really, you know, offend them in that way. Well, so at point, some point, you have to teach them what the Bible says. You don't work, you don't eat, right? I mean, you, you can't just, 
be wandering through the field and gathering grubs off the thing. If that's not making it, you might want to figure out how to plant something. Uh, and, and so what happens today spiritually in the church, we see this going on. And what it boils down to is just downright compromise. Instead of, of standing for what is right, what happens is they put one foot in what they were in before, one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity, and, and they're trying to you know, straddle the fence. You can't do that. And this is what's happening here. And so he says here, in verse 3, he says, the songs of the temple. You know, w- one thing as musicians, Rudy, you'd appreciate this, the, the mu- and Ken, the, 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 the music in the temple was incredible, like off the chart. They had hundreds and hundreds of people, both singers and instrumentalists. They'd be on duty for two weeks of the year, and they would come to the temple, and they would, they would play music, and people would sing and worship the Lord. And they, they would do it for special occasions as well and festivals that they had. They celebrated special celebrations. And then all the musicians would come at once. I mean, can you imagine? be like being at a Getty conference or something. But the music was tremendous. And the songs were uplifting. And you know what? I mean, unfortunately today, <laughs> you know, you hear some worship and you hear some churches that are calling it worship, and it's anything but worship. It's like you're at a rock concert. There's nothing wrong with rock music. I I don't mind rock music. I like all kinds of different music. But it's purely entertainment is what my point is. And people are there just to hear whoever sing or play or do whatever. In other words, God is not their focus. We don't want to end up there. You know, and, and in those situations, <clears throat> you see it on TV sometimes. Boy, you pan around and it looks like everybody's having a pretty good time. They're, they're feeling pretty good about themselves, feeling religious, feeling special. We just need to be very, very careful. And so it says there that the songs of the temple, he says, shall become wailings in that day. In other words, instead of celebratory songs and stuff, it's going to be like somebody just died. They're going to be mourning. One translation says they'll be howling. See, that's what, what mourning and wailings at a funeral would do. Instead of the joyful celebrations in God's temple, this is what's going to be, be happening. And you know, all you have to do is look through some of the Hebrew prophets, and you'll see over and over and over again the Lord's condemnation of the worship of his people because they're doing it in the wrong manner. They're doing it in the wrong way. And there's a lot of passages that we could go to, and I'm not going to do it tonight because we don't have time. But I'll just I'll list a, a couple here. You know, the, the point is, is that you can, you can stand and sing the words to the song. That does not mean you're worshiping the Lord, right? And God makes this clear over and over and over again through the prophets. I mean, sometimes our worship can be redundant, it can be mechanical, all right? Uh, we, we have to be, be careful with that. We also have to be careful with the idea, you know, there's some worship songs out there that, that frankly are just um, saying the same thing over and over like 20 times. And we have to be careful with that. It's not that it's, 
you know, it's, it's wrong to listen to. I wouldn't say that, but in an in a environment of worship, there's, there's, in the pagan world, there's a practice of what they do is they have you repeat lines over and over and over musically in order to influence the audience. And we have to be careful. We don't want to open the doors to anything like that. Now, obviously, some songs have a repeat chorus or whatever even some of the hymns do. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that. But you know what I'm talking about. Some of the music is just so repetitive, it's, it's overdone. And you have to be careful with that. And I don't think it's dictated by the style of the, the worship music. I mean, there's some churches that have one worship service. It's like a rock concert. The next worship service is, oh, it's a country thing. Everybody wears cowboy hats and cowboy boots. And then the next thing is, you know, it's just ridiculous. Like, what are we doing? I don't, I don't think that honors the Lord. Um, and so the concern of the, the prophets over and over again, as you read throughout the Old Testament, and, and really they condemn what they were doing, is they condemn the idea that we try to worship the Lord when our hearts are not right with the Lord. Because then you're just going through the mechanics of it. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, you honor me with your lips, but what? Your heart's far from me. Exactly. So you can go through all the motions. You can have all the lights and the, you know, the fog and all that stuff. And, um, and they had a lot of those kind of things, not exactly the same things, but those kind of things in Jesus' day. And he says, you know what? You're following the traditions of men and not the commandments of God. So we have to be careful with that. And see, these temple worships and these celebrations were, were just off the chart. They were, they were very exciting. Even uh, uh, Josephus tells us that the, the, the worship in the temple was just off the hook. And yet the leaders were far from God. One place I'd like you to turn is Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Because remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, those who worship me must worship me in what? Spirit and truth. Spirit, what's that mean? That means as opposed to the flesh. In other words, our, 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 our worship should not be uh, fleshly. It's not outward. It's what's going on in your heart. It's what's going on in the inside of you. And he says, so it should be in spirit. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. It means in spirit as opposed to flesh and truth. Our, our worship, the words we sing, everything we do should be based upon the Word of God, what He teaches us. And sometimes, even as a musician, I'll, I'll, I'll like a song and start playing it and then think, wow, this is a great song. We got and then I'll start, you know, somebody says, hey, do you listen to the words? And the words are way off. But because I get so caught up with the melody or whatever it is, you know, it's kind of crazy. But Isaiah chapter 1, look at verse 10. And this is just one of the, the places. Another place you could turn to, um, we're not going to, but Malachi 1. You read that and you'll see that as well. But Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, to, uh, we'll just read a couple verses here. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. <laughs> Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. I mean, th these are his people he's talking about. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Verse 14, your new moons and, and your appointed feasts my soul hates. This is God talking here. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Whoa. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are like red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Most people don't even know the, the verses around that verse. We quote that verse all the time, but we don't realize they're getting chewed out here. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But here it is, the contrast. Verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you continue to refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And he goes on and on and on. You can read the rest on yourself. Or you can turn, you don't have to turn there, but Malachi 1 is the same thing. He, he brings this up and he's talking about sacrifices they're bringing. You know, you have 10 lambs and one of them's got uh, bruises and bumps and scabs all over it. And you're thinking, well, it's just going to be burnt up on the offer anyway. Let's get rid of this one. We're not going to eat it. <laughs> and they bring it and they sacrifice it to God. And, and God is basically saying, would you do that to a king? Would you present this kind of sacrifice to a king? Would you bring this lamb before a king and say, Here, like, here's a gift, king? I mean, he would lop your head off on, on the spot. And, and what the Lord is saying, am I, am I not the king of the universe? And you're going to treat me this way, my own people? Why would you bring me the worst of your stuff? But that's how we handle worship sometimes. We have to be careful. We're going through the motions because maybe it makes us feel better. But the issue is very serious, and this is what Amos has to say. I thought it was interesting if you go all the way to the back of the Bible, Revelation 18, when he's talking about uh, uh, Babylon the Great and all that. At the end time, God's judgment removes. He removes the music and he removes the celebration. Interesting. He removes it all because it's distasteful to him when we do it when our hearts are not right before him. Well, the next thing is here, the death of thousands will bring an eerie silence. The fourth thing in these predictions that will take place is the death of thousands will bring an eerie silence. Look at what it says. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Um, and by the way, this actually happened. Okay, this is what Assyria did. They slaughtered them. And, and by the way, when they would slaughter people, uh, I don't want to go into the details because it's kind of gross, but they would fillet you while you're still alive. In other words, cut the skin off your body while you're, still, while you're still alive. And they did all kinds of horrible things. And they, they destroyed Samaria and Israel in 722 B.C. And bodies, history tells us, were everywhere. 
everywhere. And there were so many that they couldn't have uh, the proper burial. And so what they had to do is they had to gather all these bodies and burn them. Some Hebrew experts say that where it says they are thrown, that actually means that they were burnt. Some people say that it may intend to mean that. There's dead bodies everywhere. They can't bury them all. they got a serious problem. What are they going to do? They've been devastated. And instead of all the, the noise that usually would happen in this Samaritan capital because it was filled with people. And they thought, well, you know, this is never going to fall. Nobody will ever be able to attack us. We're up on a high place. It's impregnable. Nobody can ever do that. But what happened? Assyria destroyed it. And because God brought the judgment upon them, it says those people were dead silent, literally. And the silence there is that of a person who is in shock in shock, complete shock, that this could even happen. They just thought there's no way this would ever happen to those who lived in, in Samaria. It would never have crossed their minds because they were so prosperous, they were so materialistically well off. How would this ever happen? When I was reading this, it, it reminds me of our country, <laughs> doesn't it? Nobody ever take us down. We're the United States of America. Somehow we've been deluded into thinking that it will never happen here. And God is giving us warnings, is he not? We see it. But unfortunately, we're not listening. We're not hearing it. We're in, we're in crisis. And they had silence and mourning for months in their their. You know what, when something happens, whether it's the Twin Towers coming down, whether it's a mass shooting, everybody's all touchy-feely for about two weeks. And then we go right back to business as usual, right? It's, it's sad. Well, these are the not just the picture of this coming disaster, but the predictions of what will take place. And then in verses 4 to 7, we see the practices that he will not forget. <clears throat> the practices that he will not forget. He says there in verse uh, 7, Surely I will never forget any of these deeds. Starting at verse 4, going down to verse 7, we have the heart and soul, really, of what's wrong. The practices that God will never forget. I mean, aren't you blessed that God does not remember our sins? He certainly knows what we did, but he chooses not to bring it against us because of the blood of Christ. But here are some things that he says he will never forget. Here are some things that are so, you could say, distasteful to God that he will not forget them, that they have to be judged. They have to be dealt with. We either repent and we get right with God, or guess what? He's going to judge it, plain and simple. What are these things? Three of them here. The first one is the abuse of the poor and needy, verse 4. He points this out, the abuse of the poor and needy. Now, we may not be up there beating up homeless people like some people do today, which is just horrible. You see the videos, them you know, beating these poor people up. Uh, we don't go out and steal their food. 
I'm sure there's some people that do. But look at what it says in verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. In other words, you don't want them to succeed. You're purposely going out, hunting them down, and, and somehow you're, you're, you're making it harder on them. You're not giving them hand up. You're giving them a, a boot in the face. And in the Torah, in, in, in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 to 11, it tells us, according to Jewish tradition, if there's someone in need, if there's someone poor, if there's someone who can't make it on their own, they don't have the proper food or the proper clothes, we're supposed to, if we have it, we're supposed to give it out of our resources in order to help them. And by the way, we don't keep an account of that. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this food, but, you know, hey, Fred, you're going to be here next week because I want my money back. You know, no, we don't do that. I mean, I've actually heard of Christians charging people interest on the money they loan them. Wow. The Bible calls that usury. I'm not supposed to be doing that. The point is, if we have a lot, and most of us are blessed more than most people in the world, God sees our hearts whether or not we care. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, God sees all of our, our intentions, our motivations, all those things. Even Jesus in Matthew 25 says, you know what? I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then verse 37 of Matthew 25 says, Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. It's very, very important, I think, that we understand this means something to the Lord. Don't forget, Judas was the one who had the bag, and, and was the treasurer of the disciples. And it, he said, remember, he said, oh, I care for the poor. <laughs> remember when they, they were spending some money on some perfume, and oh, we, could, we could have helped the poor with this. No, he didn't care. There's a lot of people out there that say they care, they don't. That's why when you're giving to organizations, when you're helping nonprofits, things like that, you better be looking up where they spend their money. It better not all be gone to the CEO. The Bible makes it clear that Judas did not care about the poor at all. He had no desire whatsoever. He was focused on himself. And God blasts people who don't care about the poor and the needy. They're everywhere. Um, Well, the second thing here is the apathy toward God's standard of worship. The apathy toward God's standard of worship. Verse 5, 
Look at what he says here in verse 5, the first part. He says, saying, when will the new moon be over? What's the new moon? What is this? New moon is when you celebrate. You have feasts of worship during the new moon. It says that we may sell grain. That you're not supposed to sell grain on these days. And then it says, and the Sabbath. You're not supposed to sell it on, on the Sabbath either. That we may offer wheat for sale. In other words, hey, let's just get these religious things out of the way because we got to get back to making some bucks. We got to sell the wheat. And this is the second practice, really, that God hates. He hates apathy toward God's standards of worship. They could not wait until the new moon and the Sabbath were over. They treated it, you could say, with disdain. They, they didn't, it was a duty, <laughs> it was not a delight when the new moon and the, the, the Sabbath came. Do we have to go to church again? Feels like we're just there. Well, if we don't go, then you know they're not going to see us there, and you know they'll probably give us a call. Well, we'll just show up. Maybe we can leave early. we got some serious problems in the church today. And God hates apathy toward his standards of worship instead of delighting to be with god's people instead of longing to worship the lord what's it what it happen? it becomes a duty it becomes something we check off our list it's an obligation we can see it in people the other thing here is the avarice that controlled them i just mean the greed there you talk about greed. Look at what it says. That we may make, in, make the ephah small and the shekel great. Ephah was the, the way they measured the grain. The shekel was the way you paid for it. What's he mean? Basically, they're, they're charging more and they're giving you less. Sound familiar? Let's go to the grocery store. What is it with these? You know, the bag of chips or something is you know, two times the cost, but boy, the size of it just shrunk down. It's all air. And then it says, and deal deceitfully with false balances. What's that about? Well, they were ripping the people off purposely. What's interesting, they've done excavations over in uh, Terza in Israel, and they actually found from the time of Amos all the way back to the 8th century B.C., they found in the marketplace there, they were uncovering these things, and they found two sets of, of scales, and they were hooked together. And one was for buying, they figured out, and one was for selling. The only problem was they weren't the same. <laughs> they were a little sketchy in the way they worked. They were different. wonder if that's what they were talking about. There's this greed. And they deceived the people as a result of it. They were falsifying the balances. They were ripping them off. And that's how they were despising the poor and needy. It says there in verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. What's that mean? They're making these people their slaves. These poor people don't own anything. They're totally de dependent on the people who are abusing them, who are misusing them, and not caring for them at all. I mean, I get it. The, the, the southern border is broken, and it's, it's horrible what's going on there. 
But at the same time, the way our government is treating these poor people that are coming into our country is horrible. It's horrible. And sometimes we think, well, they get what they deserve. They're here illegally. <laughs> They're still people, right? They're still people. And God sees all of that. God knows what we're doing. He knows our motivation. He knows how we're running our business. He knows the practices in our own neighborhood. He, he sees every bit of it. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, what? That he will also reap. Well, the fourth thing here are the perils in verses 8 to 10, the perils that are coming. <laughs> These are the kind of disasters that we can expect, and he, he rattles off several of them here, four of them. First one is the earthquake. This is going to come from the invasion of Assyria. It's going, to, it's going to happen right after this time of Amos the prophet. It says in verse 8, Shall not the land tremble on this account, and every mourn, everyone mourn who dwells in it? It's describing an earthquake. He, he's really using a picture here of what it's going to be like when you hear the thunderous hooves of all these horses of the invading Assyrian army and what they're going to do. It's going to be like an earthquake. You ever been in an earthquake? Sure you have. You live in California. You know what it's like. It can be very fearful. It can, be, it can cause panic in the lives of people. Well, not just an earthquake, but he, he, he likens it to a flood in, in the rest of the verse there. Verse 8, it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast, and all of, its, of it rise like the Nile and tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. He's referring here to the Nile that usually overflows regularly, but at this point it's way beyond the, the borderlines of, of the, the banks of the, the river. It, there's a major disaster going on. And he's, he's saying, you know what, this is going to be so overwhelming you're going to be drowned by it. These are Assyrian troops that are going to overwhelm you like a flood, is what he's saying. You won't believe what's going to happen. Remember, these are people that felt very secure where they lived. The next thing there, the third thing is darkness. It says, and on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Remember a couple years ago, whatever it was, when we had the fires, remember around noontime? I mean, it literally got dark. That freaked a lot of people out. It's like, well, what's happening? It's like going through the tribulation period when the, the sun, it says, will be dark. It, it will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That's going to freak people out. That's going to cause major panic. Matter of fact, Bible, the, the Bible describes hell itself as a place of utter darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, The next thing here, verse 10, is sorrow. Sorrow. Five things here reveal the pain and sorrow that's coming. It's describing these perils that are coming as the word sorrow. Verse 10, he says, you know, you, you think you've experienced pain. Well, there's five things here uh, that he's going to focus on. First one is their celebrations will be turned from joy to mourning. From joy to mourning. I will turn your feasts into mourning. You talk about sorrow, you talk about pain, you talk about agony hitting people. I mean, they're, they just want to have a big party. Well, no, the party's over. 
He's going to turn this joy into mourning. I remember I wasn't at this event, but a family in our church had a big, I think it was a graduation celebration for one of the young people or whatever it was, and uh, um, just a wonderful day, and stopped by, gave a gift, and I left, and uh, later during the day, I heard that uh, one of the young people was killed in an automobile accident as they left the celebration right down the street. And I remember the father telling me, yeah, he goes, everybody was having such a great time. It was just, and it wasn't his fault. He wasn't, you know, they weren't drinking or anything. It was just a freak accident. But he said that that whole celebratory mood was just sucked out of us because this young man lost his life. This is what's going to happen. He says their chorus of joyful songs will now be lamentation. You ever read through the book of Lamentations? You'll get a, you'll get a feeling of what it's like to have sorrow in your heart crying over the disaster. And then it says their clothing will reveal their loss. This is kind of interesting. He says, I will bring sackcloth on every waist. You say, well, what, what's he talking about here? Remember where, what we're talking about. We're talking about Samaria, and Samaria was very wealthy. They were very well off. They had the finest silks, the finest fabrics in the world were bought by these ladies of Samaria. But in their, their apathy, he mentions it all the way back in chapter 6. He says, woe to those that are, are in Zion, right? That are at ease in Zion. Be careful. And it says here, their clothing revealed their loss. They were walking around with sackcloth, like burlap. And their countenance showed it. They will suffer the loss of hair. I kind of chuckled at that one. Baldness on every head. Some say the baldness is just a metaphor for tragedy, but I think it's actually um, a consequence of judgment. Micah one six mentions this. You know, baldness. You know, you can be nat <clears throat> naturally bald. You can shave your head. You, you know, we, sometimes people are bald, and we make you know people make jokes about it. Uh, Grass doesn't grow on a playground. You know, they say all kinds of different things, you know, to make the people feel better because they're bald. Um, but there's also, you know, terrible diseases that cause baldness. Bring the loss of hair. Chemotherapy. People go through chemotherapy, radiation, all that kind of stuff. It's not very pleasant. And we know that as you get older, you tend to lose your hair. You, you, you get some baldness. Well, those aren't, you wouldn't call those great disasters, right? But what he's picturing here is interesting. He's picturing a whole people, the whole nation, going bald, losing their hair. And if you know anything about hair, hair basically is affiliated with honor. It's almost as if they've lost all their honor, all that they honored, all that they adored, all that they spent so much caring for, putting time together. And you know what? Historians tell us that the hairdos of some of these ladies back in the world, ancient world of Samaria, were, were just off the chart. Very intricate, very expensive hairdos. Their jewelry was just off the chart. Very well known for their designer stuff, everything that they had, very lavish 
And God says, you know what? You're just going to be like a bunch of bald people walking around in burlap. Not a nice picture. The consequences will bring serious sorrow and bitterness. He says, I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The Bible says that Esau found no place of repentance because he had a spirit of bitterness in him. See, this is the whole northern kingdom. They're going to taste this pill of bitterness. Well, the last thing here is not just the picture of the coming disaster, the predictions of what's going to take place, the practices that, that God will not forget, the perils that are coming, but the prophecy of the coming famine and destruction of their religious corruption in verse 11. Four things here. The first one is the removal of God's message. See, this isn't a famine. We think of famine, we think of food, right? Poor people don't have nothing to eat, they don't have nothing to drink. That's a famine. They're having a famine of sorts over in Gaza now. People are eating dog food. They're eating whatever they can get their hands on because of the war. This isn't a famine like that. It's not a famine of food and water. It's a famine, he says, of God's word. Think about this for a moment. God is going to remove his message from them as proof of his judgment and of the destruction that's coming. And look at what he says. First of all, the hand of the Lord will do this. He says, I will send the famine. I will do it. A lot of times we think of, and I've mentioned this before as well, we, we think of world events um, that have to do with our uh, uh, weather and things like that. We call them, what, natural disasters. There are no natural disasters. There's no evidence of natural disasters in the Bible. But I do see that there's a God behind the disaster. They're not natural, they're supernatural. They come from the hand of the Lord for His reasons, and many times we don't understand it. But the hand of the Lord is doing this, he says. He says, I will send the famine. And then in verse 11 he says, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord, the hearing of God's message will be no more. You won't be able to hear it. And then he says, the hunger will not be satisfied, though they seek it. They shall not find it. See, there's a hunger in the hearts of these people to know what God has to say. Because they're under all this judgment now, all these the armies coming in, all this stuff's happening. Well, what does God say about this? They're not going to be able to, to find out. They're going to seek it. And that's part of the judgment. And you know what? God is basically saying, you know what? You had the chance right? You had the prophet. I sent you a prophet. And what did you do? You sent him away. You didn't want to hear it. You heard the word of the Lord. You didn't do anything about it. And now when you're really desperate, when you're really serious here and all this stuff is happening, all these attacks are happening to you, now you want to hear from God. Well, guess what? You're not going to. Boy, you can look all you want, but you're not going to find it, he says in verse 12. The removal of God's message. I mean, I think we are very much blessed to be in a church today that teaches the Bible. 
because you know what? You don't have to go too far to look out there in different churches and find out, you know what? There is a famine of God's Word. Hear it all the time. Even in our small little church, people come visit. Oh, it's so good to hear somebody teaching from the Bible. What are they teaching? You, you don't even want to know. No one teaches the Bible anymore. Sometimes they refer to a verse here or there, and, you know, and then they go back to what they want to talk about, politics, community, whatever, resources, whatever, and so forth, cultural things. It's happening not just here in the Bay Area, my friends. It's all over the country. And the church services are basically getting a lot of focus and, and, and religious leaders, but they're not teaching the Bible. You see it on TV. You have these guys up there, you know, it's great. They have a wedding ring on, but then they got like five other, six other rings and gold chains, and they're running back and forth. What, what are they doing? Have we lost our minds? People support this kind of things? There's a famine of the word of the living God. And I wonder, here in America, if it's not, as it was back in Amos' day, a part of his judgment. Maybe he's giving notice something, something bad is coming, something terrible is coming. You better be ready. And the warning is the famine of the word of the living God. I mean, 40 years ago, I think, that you could take a lot of the pastors today that are not teaching the Bible, and, and their churches would have thrown them out. They would have said, we don't want to hear this stuff. What is this stuff? Teach us the Bible. And in a very, very, very short time, we have seen this just happen overnight. Thank God we're in a church that teaches the Bible. I read a statistic this past week. They said there's now over 200,000 churches that no longer do expositional teaching of the Bible. And they do it because, well, we got to reach this cultural, you know, this contemporary culture. Uh, they're not interested, and so we got to find ways to bring them into the door, and then, you know, eventually maybe we'll share the gospel with them. The problem is, by the time they get around to sharing the gospel, it's so watered down, you'd never even recognize it because they don't want to offend anybody. I mean, I don't ever really remember people coming up to me, even as a youth pastor, you know, 20, 30 years ago, going, oh, teach me the Bible, teach me the Bible. I mean, people haven't been interested in it. And we've gotten kind of crazy to kind of dumb everything down to the point where we're, we're not teaching them anything. So after the removal of God's message, he says the reaction of the beautiful and the strong. Look at verse 13. This is very interesting. He says, in that day, in this day of judgment, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. That word lovely there, I mean, let's just put it bluntly. This isn't, you know, on a scale of one to ten. We're not talking a, a one or, or a three or even a four. We're talking a ten. Okay, I mean, the idea is beautiful, like off-the-chart beautiful, gorgeous gals. And they had it together. They were very prosperous. 
Then the young men, they're talking about men who are at the epitome of life. They got strength and, and they're good looking, they're successful. And it says they're going to faint for thirst. They're, they're, they're going to be so desperate to know what God has to say that even in spite of their beauty and in spite of their strength and all the greatness that they should have in front of them as life, they're in dire straits because they know that judgment is coming. And then in verse 14, it says the rebellion gets stronger. The rebellion gets stronger. Isn't that weird that, I mean, here it says judgment. They're in the midst of the trouble. The judgment is happening. And you think, you would think that people would want to get right with the Lord, right? I mean, it's not like they don't know why this is happening. I mean, he's told them over and over and over again. And yet they double down. It's like Romans 1, right? When you read Romans 1, it's like it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You would think that some people would really want to get right with the Lord and be running into the arms of the Lord, but it says, it says there, those who swear by the guilt or the, the, the guilt of Samaria. That word guilt, sin, can also refer to the pagan deity Asherah. It's very similar. And then they say, as, as your God lives, O Dan. Well, what, what happened in Dan? That's where the, the golden calf was set up, at Dan and at Bethel. And what's he saying? He goes, that's not going to do you any good. You can cry out to your little calf all you want. <laughs> not going to help you. And then he says, as the way of Beersheba lives. And what he's talking about here is, is the, the way that you walk. Uh, Beersheba is the last, if you look at a map, the last outpost before you go into the Sinai Desert. It's like the southernmost city in Israel, the southernmost part. And what he's talking about, he's, those who left Beersheba should walk all the way to Samaria. That's a long trip. Many, many, many days. And what he's saying is the manner or the way they walk from Beersheba as the way of Beersheba lives, it, it kind of reminds me of in Islam when you you do the, the Hajj, you go back, and somehow this journey that you make is going to make you more religious and more faithful. And what he's saying is, look, you can go all the way to Samaria. I don't care. That's not going to help you at this point. <laughs> Judgment is coming. And another indictment here against what's happening, because they would not repent, they would not get right with the Lord, and the rebellion, instead of turning to the Lord, it gets stronger. The final thing is the result is unavoidable. Look at what it says in verse 14, the last part. Even they shall fall and never rise again. Wow. It's a very interesting verse. Isaiah mentions it in chapter 40 of his book when he said, even the young men will faint and grow weary. And the idea is the same here. And what Amos is, is saying here is, is those who, who swear by the guilt of Samaria and as your God lives, O Dan, as the way of Beersheba lives, all this stuff. There's not going to be any religious activity no matter how, how much you try to do. It's, it's not going to stop his hand of judgment.
pretty incredible chapter. You say, well, that's kind of a downer to end on that. <laughs> so we don't want to end there. I want to read one last text of Scripture for you because I think when we read this, I, I pray, as I was studying this, I was thinking about my own relationship to the Lord. I was thinking about my own worship with Him, my own time with Him, my hunger for the Word of God. How horrible that would be if that was just taken away, if I couldn't have the Bible anymore, if I couldn't have the Word of God, if I couldn't have access to it. We take it too far, too much for granted nowadays. The Bible says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, 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 the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And he explains, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and the leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers the contrast with the wicked, verse 4, the wicked are not so, but, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for Amos's insight and his prophecy here, Lord, and how applicable it is to us as we live in our country. Sometimes we're kind of reluctant to hear this kind of message, but this is your word. You say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we believe that you have spoken this. You have made it clear. You left it in the Bible for us to read. And all these things you tell us in the New Testament written for our our learning and admonition helps us grow. And so we're facing now those last days and looking forward to the return of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah of Israel, the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. And we look around us in our culture and we see things that are quite similar to the days of Amos the prophet. It's easy for us to let this happen to us, to where our worship just becomes a duty instead of delight, where we really aren't internally worshiping you, but we're just trying to go through the program externally, even emotionally, to feel some response. Your word says we need to love you first above everything else. You need to be number one. And a lot of us have enjoyed prosperity, we desire prosperity. We don't want to be poor. But to be honest, we've cared little about those in need. And so, Lord, help us to have a balance. Help us to help where we can and do it responsibly. And to do it as unto you. You tell us, everyone who purposes in his own heart, that we should give not grudgingly or of necessity, but willingly because you love a cheerful giver. Maybe do it with joy and sincerely trying to help those who are in need. Pray that you would help us apply your word to our life through the power of the Spirit. 
speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.